A government shutdown in three weeks is unlikely, but Congress still has to work out details of a continuing resolution. Then there's the matter of that $47 billion in immediate spending the White House has requested for COVID relief and a few other things. We get the latest from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, there is a little bit of sense of deja vu all over again or insanity, depending on your definition of what happens every year. But the continuing resolution itself still has to be resolved to some degree, right? Right. There are no illusions of wrapping up a dozen appropriations bills in the coming weeks before the start of the new fiscal year on October 1st. So everyone here, Republicans, Democrats, all saying a continuing resolution has to be done. But it could get complicated by a host of issues. That White House request for $47 billion that you alluded to includes more than half of it going to COVID and monkeypox. Also, it would include aid for Ukraine, disaster relief from natural disasters. All of that money being being tacked into that short-term spending bill is just not going to fly with Republicans. Ukraine aid does seem to be the most likely to survive, along with natural disaster aid, but also complicating matters, legislation to codify same-sex marriage, which Democrats want to do in the wake of a Supreme Court decision, uh, rather an opinion suggesting it could be at risk of being overturned. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer wants a standalone vote on that, but Democrats are having trouble getting enough Republicans on board to overcome a filibuster, and that could lead to to reconsideration of whether to make it part of the CR, which Democrats really don't want to do. Yeah, that's really kind of sort of an omnibus with some strange passengers aboard here. <laughs> it does. I guess you could say it's progress if they're only asking for tens of billions for COVID and monkeypox. A couple <laughs> of years ago, it was a trillion at a time. Right. So anyway, does that mean then that could that debate over all those little elements that would go into the CR, could that push us to a shutdown situation? At the moment, the lawmakers are saying it wouldn't, but you know as well as I do that in the past they've said everything was copacetic and then things as they got closer to the deadline got into a little trouble area and there's another trouble area that I hadn't mentioned yet and uh, that is in connection with West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. There was a side deal in connection with uh, the Majority Leader Schumer in connection with various energy projects and a natural gas pipeline being fast-tracked which is what Manchin wanted. So they made this deal and that helped them get the health and climate bill passed before the summer break. But now there's some murmurs from Democrats that they they don't really like the fact that Schumer is talking about tacking it into this continuing resolution. Uh, Schumer last week said that it basically is part of going to be part of the CR. But then right after that, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders popped up on the Senate floor and says he'll vote against the stopgap measure if it includes the provision. And then later, about 50 House Democrats said that they would oppose this deal with Manchin, although they have not said they will actually vote against the bill. Still, it's another complicating factor. So even though there are assurances from Senate leaders that they will get all of this sorted out, there still always remains the possibility that they will not. Sounds like Bernie Sanders and some of the House Democrats liked everything about the infrastructure bill, but the infrastructure. (laughs) Right. And that permitting is strictly on energy projects like gas pipelines. And what about roads and bridges and other things that 
often take a long time to get permitted as well. Right. I mean, this has been an area where Mansion has been trying to get things moved more quickly. It does predominantly deal with energy-type projects. He's had a pet project, particularly with a pipeline involving West Virginia, that he really wanted to get through. And, of course, as you know, he has been, at times, the most powerful person in the Senate because of his unique position in the 50-50 split. So we'll see how that works out. What they do want to do is get this CR through basically mid-December then there are hopes, uh, maybe illusions, that an overall bill could be worked out in the lame duck session. We'll have to see about that. By the way, uh, Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy and Alabama Senator Richard Shelby, both key appropriators, they are both getting ready to retire. So we'll have to see if that gives them a little bit more of an impetus to push this across the finish line at some point. Yeah, a lame duck or a Christmas goose, I guess. We're speaking <laughs> with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And there's also postal service reform pricing going on on Capitol Hill. Some work there from Representative Jerry Connolly. That's right. The House Oversight and Reform Subcommittee that's led by Virginia Congressman Connolly, they held a hearing last week, a field hearing in Philadelphia, and lawmakers just took turns blasting the Postal Service for poor service. Uh, Lawmakers are upset about a wide range of issues, including delays in delivery of mail-in ballots from the last presidential election. Pennsylvania Democrats made it clear they want to make sure those ballots are delivered in a timely fashion for the midterm elections. Uh, The poster boy for criticism remains Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, who's trying to implement a variety of reforms. There were also complaints actually about crime against postal carriers. The lawmakers pointing out that uh, the police force for the Postal Service has actually been reduced quite a bit. And Jerry Connolly pointed out there have been uh, more attacks and robberies of people delivering the mail. So that was another complaint. And then getting to possible reforms, Connolly has just proposed new legislation that potentially would make it harder for the Postal Service to raise rates. This would require the Postal Regulatory Commission to re-examine its rate-setting system, which was only put in place two years ago. The latest system allows the Commission to set prices on a formula that takes into account inflation, as well as the declines in mail delivery and other factors. DeJoy has been raising rates at a quicker pace than in the past. That troubles some lawmakers. Usually it's based just on inflation. Uh, The Postal Service actually announced a profit in the third quarter of 2022 uh, this year, but most of that came from Congress lifting that Postal Service obligation to pre-fund retiree benefits uh, for health benefits. Uh, Again, Jerry Connolly skeptical of the higher rate hikes, slower services, and fewer workers, so he is proposing basically a review period which would sort of slow down the possible rate hikes by the Postal Service. Yeah, there's an old saying in computers, the engineers say you want better, faster, cheaper, Pick two of the above. I guess maybe that's true of the Postal Service. That's very true, yep. And finally, because of the short period left in the legislative cycle for this year, is January 6th still occupying or will occupy Congress? Are they going to take up more time for that because of perhaps the perceived political benefit of it? Right. So obviously the January 6th hearings took up a lot of oxygen here on Capitol Hill over the summer. There are plans for perhaps at least one more hearing this month. They have not scheduled it yet, but committee members say they keep taking in more information, which has made it more difficult to wrap up everything, and they need to put together a report 
support, and they're racing against those midterm elections, as you pointed out, which could lead to Republicans retaking the House and getting rid of the committee. That's widely expected. The committee is expected to release a preliminary report of their findings potentially in the next month or so, but they also want to come up with recommendations to make sure that nothing like the insurrection happens again. So a lot of work to do in a short amount of time. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, One thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, But we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.